This podcast is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, check out our website at communitycovenant.net. The scripture reading this morning is from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. I have good news of of great joy for those of you um, who know the story of Neil and Autumn. They had a little baby boy yesterday. And uh, so, yeah, uh, Neil is on our staff, and that has been such a long journey. And, and so Sebastian, Luke, uh, Isaac, I got Luke earlier. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, Sebastian, Isaac, and he was born yesterday about noon. So um, if you want more details, talk to my wife. How's that? <laughs> This uh, Christmas Eve is, okay, Saturday, and I want to walk you through what that means. And um, we have a 3 o'clock service, and then we have another one at 4.30. And these first two services, I've got a couple of props here, are, are every year they just kind of keep growing. And uh, this is a, actually it's a duck, uh, and but there's, you know, you may read the Christmas story and you say, well, where's the ducks? Well, they're in there. It's just there. You know, it's not obvious. But we have stable animals that you can little, you know, kids can come as a stable animal. They can be a wise man or a wise girl. Right. You know, we, we love. And then we have uh, uh, shepherds and, and shepherdesses and angels. And uh, anyway, angels don't have sex. Right. We know that. Did you guys know that they're without gender? Yeah, you should know that. Um, Bible says so. Anyway, you can, a kid can come in, in any of those things. Now, we have costumes for, for all. The, the really cool part about this is that you may have a neighbor kid, a family, who doesn't know a thing about who Jesus is, and that is the reality of our world. <laughs> and they can come and be part of the greatest story ever told. Let me just think about that. And uh, so we, we do everything we can just to make this just really easy entry. It's a very invitable service. If you've ever, I mean, Christmas Eve, to watch your kids have fun and to be in the story, and there's a petting zoo afterwards. We have two of those services. Uh, there's chaos in the room. For control freaks, stay away. You won't, you'll hate it. You'll hate it. But um, for those that are more free-flowing, you'll love it. And so uh, those are the first two services. Then we have our second two services that are more traditional. And, and we have fun there, too. We smile, but it's, it's a little more somber. 
And so uh, consider that. Now, next Sunday, a week from today, we were trying to figure out what to do. Now, what kid in the world wants to go to church on Sunday morning? Now, really, come on, adults. Have you been away too long from what it means to be a kid? So we decided, let's just do a 3 o'clock, one service. We don't, you know, I mean, we don't know how many people are going to show up. We've got some special things planned, mostly Christmas carols and a short devotional and some stories of people. And so it'll, it'll feel a little different, but that's at 3 o'clock. You can have dinner before that or after that and enjoy Christmas uh, together here. So... Uh, there you go. Oh, I, this is another prop. I was supposed to. I've got a. This is the. Uh, this is the star. That I think is this the. Who, who brings this around? The wise men, the angels. I can't remember. Somebody is carrying this in the parade of chaos that night. Okay, get rid of these. Keith, if you want to wear that, you're good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I appreciated Diane's story because. She talked about the head and the heart. The Christian faith appeals to both, but to make that connection is everything. I hope to make that connection this morning. So I'm going to start with the head. Many of you may have seen, even this week, a program on PBS this time of year. You'll, you'll see uh, programs that relate to Jesus and who Jesus was in history. Now, I want to give you just a little background there that might help uh, understand all of this. There was a time, uh, roughly 100 years ago, when scholars and uh, the intelligentsia uh, had come to the conclusion, at least some of them, that there may not have even been a real man named Jesus from a, a real place called Nazareth roughly 2,000 years ago. Uh, and they, they, the, the reasoning they used was because the, they believed the New Testament documents came from roughly uh, 150 years after Christ. So around the year 180 AD, Jesus was crucified around 30 so 150 years later, there weren't any historical references uh, other than a few shady ones. Uh, that's the interpretation. And all you have then is the, is the Bible itself. And, you know, that's, that comes from the insiders in the movement. And those voices were so much later. And, and so you can't really uh, trust those fully. And so the idea was that, that Jesus maybe didn't even exist, that we invented him. Now, just think about that. It's 150 years, and, do, and things can get whacked out in 150 years. But 150 years ago, we had a president named Abraham Lincoln, and there's still books being written on him. So, you know, do, do, you know it doesn't necessarily compute. But um, something happened, and I want to give you, this is a very, very significant thing I'm going to show you right here. If I can get it up there. This is the oldest document that we have from the New Testament. This is the Gospel of John, chapter 18, part of it. And they dated this. This was found in 1920, and then it was kept. It was found in Egypt and then uh, sent to a museum in England. And somebody finally got it out and figured out what it was. And that document is from the year 125. That's the oldest document we have. There's thousands of documents that we have. Uh, when I say documents, parts of the New Testament that we have that are later than that, but this is the absolute earliest that we have. So you can see all of these people who are saying that the New Testament wasn't written until late in the second century are forced to reconcile how this could then, you know, it kind of shook up the, the world of, of uh, scholars anyway. And so they came to another... Uh, conclusion, or, and this is what you'll hear today if you understand the, the phrase Jesus Seminar, and that is it, it moved in a different direction to say that, that there was a man named Jesus. There's no question about that. 
All, uh, there's, I don't know if there's a scholar in the world today that would doubt the existence of a man named Jesus. It's just it, they don't doubt that anymore. But here's what they say, that he was a good man and he lived in Nazareth, Nazareth and he died on a cross. But he didn't do any miracles and certainly he wasn't resurrected from the dead because those things just they don't happen. That's the logic. So you have scholars today who will talk about and this is what was on PBS this week. They'll talk about the Jesus of history, that there was a real man. And then they'll talk about the Christ of faith and that those are two different things. Because the early church invented the Christ of faith. They made up all of these stories about Jesus, including his resurrection. And then what we have to do, according to the the Jesus Seminar people, is sort through all of that to get right back down to the historical Jesus and find out what he really said. And then they vote, these men, uh, maybe there's women, mostly men, they vote on what Jesus, they think, Jesus actually said. And they, they, you know, delete most of the New Testament as we know it. Okay, that's just so you know, that's what's going on. However, there are scholars on the other side who say, look, we can tell from history that when something becomes a legend and uh, thinking of you know, a legend. So um, they were forced to uh, if John's gospel was, uh, in fact, found in 125 A.D., it must have been written earlier than that, found in Egypt and and then, you know, implying that it came, you know, there's other places that it had gone to. Earlier than that, sometime, which really it fits pretty well with what we believe is that John wrote this sometime between 90 and 100 uh, A.D. And so this would have been 25 years later in Egypt. That makes sense. And that the other Gospels, since John is obviously the latest of the Gospel writers, were written earlier than that. And most scholars today believe that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written between 60 and 70 A.D., roughly 45 years or so after Christ. 45 years ago in Alaska, there was what? An earthquake. And you can go to people today who will talk about the Alaska earthquake, and you will get reports on that. You can't make things up too much. Because there's still people alive. They'll correct you. When I went to my 40th high school reunion this summer, I was trying to relate this, you know, okay. And if I were to go there and say, you know, when I was here, I was the brightest and the best of this class, or talk about myself in those ways, there would be other people in my class who would say, Mark, we knew you. People were alive while you can't build a legend. So what scholars have said is that it takes about 200 years to make a legend out of something like that. 200 years. That's not, that doesn't compute. So you you have these voices, these New Testament voices that seem to be fairly early, you know, roughly 60 to 100 A.D. that are proclaiming something about Jesus that they saw and they want the world to know about it. It doesn't sound like legend. So we're going to look at one of those voices today. That was the appeal to your heads. Hopefully you followed that. And we're going to get to our hearts. The name of this man is John. I've already mentioned this is the same writer that wrote this right here. Now, that would not have been John's handwriting. That would have been a copy of what he wrote. Uh, it wouldn't, I mean, as far as we, there would have been many, many copies all over the Mediterranean world. But that was found about 125, or um, written about 125, found in 1920. And we're going to look at his testimony about, about Christ. And uh, hopefully, you know, he's so convinced. And, and this is the thing that 
I don't know how we can say it. And I know, Keith, you try to say this stuff. But that God, God became one of us. Now, you, we hear it if you're a Christian if, and if you've been in Christ, church very long. You know you've heard that too many times to, make it, to, to allow it to impact you the way it should. So my prayer this morning is that it would impact. It would get past our heads and down into our hearts. And uh, John was so convinced that God had become one of us, as the song goes. And then we're going to, because you, you can't respond to this stuff very, very you, you need some worship. So we're going to go, there's reason to believe, but ultimately you need faith. And what faith does is it provokes worship. So before I get finished, I'm going to have the worship team come back up here. And we're going to sing together, what child is this? Because, well, because it's my favorite. <laughs> you have no choice. Well, unless you don't say, all right, invite you in. So that's, that's the, the plan. I want to walk through really just the first verse. Uh, we'll get into a little bit of the other, but this one verse that John uh, writes here is huge. Beginning. Uh, the word beginning, you find it in the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John, in his gospel, so you have the gospel of John, from which this is from, and then you have this letter that John wrote Later on, so it's called First John. Then you have Second and Third John. These three letters. But he says in in uh, in his gospel, he says, "In the beginning was the Word," and he's. It's funny. John holds back the name of Jesus until verse 17. He talks about somebody, 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 and you finally get to verse 17 of first of his gospel, and he, there it is. Jesus Christ came, full of grace and truth. John, so he, in his first in his gospel, he says, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God." meaning Jesus was with God and the word was God. And then in this letter, he starts it out by from the beginning, that which we have heard and, and seen and touched. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But from the beginning, the Greek word is arche, and arche means source or first cause. And it, it makes us go back into, I mean, we've got to use our imaginations here, folks. Pretend you're not on planet Earth for a while, okay? And that you're going to go back into eternity with your imagination. You've got to imagine a time before time, as Disney once or whoever said, the time before. And it is the land before time, I guess it was. But it, it's, um, it's this time when the God, just God was. Eternity. And uh, this is where John begins. Now, Mark begins his gospel in the coming of Jesus Christ when he begins his ministry. That's how Mark begins his gospel. Probably the first gospel written of the four. Matthew, probably the second gospel, begins by taking you back to Abraham. He wants to start there. That's his beginning, his starting point, because he's writing to Jews. Luke, who's a Gentile, like most of us here, we're not Jewish. Luke takes us back all the way to Adam to include the whole world in the story. And John comes along last, and he says, well, I can do better than that. <laughs> We're going to go back into the Godhead, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, in the beginning. So when, when John is saying beginning, he's not talking about the beginning of creation. He's talking about something that goes back into something that we can't see. It's not on calendar. He's talking about the time before the beginning, really. The arche, the source, the first cause. And we get into, the, into the, the, the person of God in whom there is no beginning. And do you know that Jesus, we, does, Jesus has a beginning, and it's what we celebrate at Christmas. 
There was no Jesus before Bethlehem, but there was an eternal Son of God who was part of the Trinity. And this Son of God becomes Jesus of Nazareth, becomes human, and you know that Christian theology teaches that he will always be human. He's human today, and he always will be human. There will never be a time where the second person of the Trinity is not human, but there once was, and that's what we're looking into, into the beginning. Isn't this just wild stuff? I mean, this is what... So John has this deep way of looking at truth. And, uh, you know, you really have to respect what he's saying. In the beginning was the Word. So when we worship, which I talked about earlier, we enter into that which we don't fully understand, but we appreciate and uh, we have to turn to art and musicians and people that write poetry and things that get beyond words, that provoke feelings that we can't put words to. And so when we sing, what child is this? You know, it's funny. Have you ever got the giggles in church? You know, when I was a kid, my brother and I, um, this happened more than once, and my dad had, you know, do his dad thing. But there's a line in What Child Is This where ox and ass are feeding. <laughs> when you're a seven-year-old boy, <laughs> my dad looked down and then he smiled because <laughs> he knew. I guess he was a kid once himself. But, but that's where we, you know, we, we, we don't get it. And then what's interesting in this in this carol is that when I become a Christian at age 24 and I go to a midnight, uh, my first Christmas as a Christian, and boy, did I see things differently. And I go to a midnight, uh, what do you call it? Anyway, service. <laughs> I'm a pastor. I should know that. Well, <laughs> midnight service. I was tired. And we got there and I remember singing What Child Is This? And it has become my favorite carol. And in part because of what I'm saying, there's a lot of Christmas carols that, you know, they're, they're good and all the rest, but they talk about Bethlehem. Well, when you read John, you can't stay in Bethlehem. You're going back into eternity. And in that, in that uh, we're going to sing it, but it, it talks about the Word made flesh. The Word made flesh. That's deep theology that we can wrap our minds around, yeah, a little bit, but ultimately our hearts have to respond to. The Word made flesh. Well, uh, let's see what else John has to say. Well, so far we've gotten past one word. Oh, well, we better hurry up here. He says, that which was from the beginning, the arche, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes and which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. I want to give you a... Uh, uh, a little bit of a, uh, go to the mind thing here again for a second. This uh, Hebrew, Hebrew or Jewish and Greek uh, views of, of God are different. And we, there's much that's been written on this because uh, the Christian faith was born in a Jewish world with a context around it of, of Greek culture. It's written in Greek. So you have this interaction between the Greek and the Hebrew in the New Testament. And... Just uh, let's start with the Greek uh, first. Did, did a, a Greek person believe that you could hear God? Absolutely not. 
or see God. Absolutely not. Or touch God. Oh, no, no, not even. And it's because the Greek view of God was that he was so far away. Now, this is after this is when it got more sophisticated. This is after the time of Zeus and and, uh, you know, Apollo and all those the, the all those multiple gods of the Greeks. This is when it got a little more sophisticated, more on the platonic, if I can use that word, platonic side, where you have one God, but that one God is so far away. He's incorruptible. He's unchangeable. You can't know him. He's, he is just, he's out there. He's the unifying principle of life, and he's not personal as such. He's abstract, and, you know, um, and, and he's spirit. He's spirit, and everything on this earth is not spirit. It's material, and therefore he will have nothing to do with this. That's the, the Greek view of God. Let's go to the Jewish view. It's much more complex. Does a, a Jewish person, uh, Old Testament, believe that you can hear God? Absolutely. The whole Jewish faith is based on hearing God. There is no Old Testament without people hearing God. It's everywhere. And it's so important. And we uh, maybe can learn something from the Jews on this point. The Hebrew word for hearing uh, or word uh, uh, is, is uh, debar. So you would hear God speak. That is the debar, the word of God. And it's not a thing as much as it is a verb. That This is the speech of God. God when, when it says debar, it's talking about a living word that comes into you. And you shema, you hear it, and you live in your hearing response. So living word coming from God, living response to that word, that is what is, we call faith. You, you hear God with your whole body, would be the Hebrew way of saying hearing. So you get to what that means? It means obedience. When God says something, you listen, you obey, and you do. Uh, that's the, uh, so, and the Greek word logos, the way John is using it, and that's what we find here, the word of life, it's logos, it's zoe, zoe is life. Word is logos. This is used the same way. John is Jewish. He's thinking Jewish thought patterns here. And then Shema is the Hebrew I've already mentioned. So it's a very, the, Hebrew, the, the uh, Jewish person, yes, they hear God. There is no faith without it. Could you see God, though, in the Old Testament? And the answer is given in, uh, God actually gives it to Moses. He says, you cannot see God and live. No man, no woman can see God and live. But in the Old Testament, you find glimpses of God. You find God in various uh, forms, and you find God allowing the, his backside somehow. I don't, some, he, he appears to Moses in some way. But the idea is that you can't see God and live because the intensity of the holiness in God is just too much for human beings. Just too intense. So you have Isaiah who sees the presence of God in the temple, and he's psychologically undone. He just, he, he just about kills him. So you can't really see God. Can you touch God? And uh, no way. I, I, it, there's just no... A Jewish person would, would cringe at the idea of touching God. Uh, how could you do such a thing? And for those of you who know the story of... Uh, in in for our Second Samuel 6, it's the story of the Ark of the Covenant being carried along. And there's a man named Uzzah. And you know what happens to him? Just because he tries to... He touches the Ark which represents the presence of God, and Uzzah is no more. I mean, he's, there he is, and he's gone. And that's, it's to, it just that was so holy. Now, if you, if you don't want to read your Bibles, go watch Raiders of the Lost Ark. 
You remember the end of that movie, right? Okay, it gets the point across, really. The, the presence of God implies holiness. You can't approach God without a whole bunch of preparation, a whole bunch of hand-washing, cleansing. All of the, there's so much in the Old Testament regarding that stuff, right? Patty's, this is my, this is my I'll bring it down for you. Patty's grandmother, um, she had particular habits in eating, and one thing she did not like on her plate was cheese. So, and it wasn't just the cheese being on the plate, but if the cheese was touching other food, that food could not be consumed. You see what I'm saying here? Cheese contaminated other holy food. That's, that just gives you, I'm trying to bring it down, you know. So it, it's that idea that the holy cannot come in contact with the unholy. That's in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus, okay, all that stuff. Jesus, the, the word of God, the, the second person of God, the Holy Father, Son, Spirit, comes into this world incarnate. You know what the word incarnate means? Carn. Carnivore. Come on, you hunters. What does it mean? Meat. Right? Incarnate. Flesh. My son Jesse was, when he was, you know, little, um, he would go around his favorite Christmas carol, Good King Wenceslas, or Wenceslas, however you want to pronounce it. And there's a line in there. Bring me flesh and bring me wine. Bring me pine logs hither. And he loved that stuff. And he'd go around the house singing that. It's a pastor kid's way of rebelling, you know. <laughs> it's his favorite line of all the Christmas carols. Isn't it? Yeah. I'm trying to bring it down, you know. So that's, that's my point. That, that God, the one who, who is spirit, of truly spirit, came down into this world and became flesh. Flesh. And he allowed himself to be not just heard, and he is the living word. He is the active word. He is that which we must respond to. Not just heard, but seen and touched. The incarnate word, seen and touched. And there's something that amazing, amazing that happens when he is, allows himself um, to be in that way. I want to... Uh, he's not contaminated. And that's the, uh, the amazing thing is that something in, re- reverses there where the concern for the cheese being on the plate is no more, if I can put it that way. That... that that Jesus actually goes out of his way to touch unholy people <laughs> like me. I mean, that's weird. I mean, something has changed. The veil has been torn. The God of the Old Testament has powered down be out of his love for people like me. People, I mean, you know, little kids that giggle over a song, you know, and all the rest. The other stuff I've done in my life. He powers down. He sets aside his glory and he comes into our world allows himself to be touched and instead of him becoming unholy when he's touched we become holy the cheese becomes holy it's like an, it's it's an amazing thing that happens when god becomes man now there's two uh there's two other things that i, w- I want to touch on here and 
and then we're going to sing. There's two laws that I'm going to be doing a series in January, and so we'll probably come back to these two laws. Let's see where we are. Here we are. In, in relationships, these are laws. That I call they're called laws, but they're principles, whatever, of relationships. And you can read these in secular books. But they, they just, I think they really help us understand the incarnation. One is the law of least love. Okay, if you, I've, I've, said, I've brought this up before. The law of least love basically says that there's an inverse relationship between power and love. So in a marriage, when one, or in a dating relationship, when one person loves more than the other, that person has less power in the relationship. And if you've ever been jilted, or whatever that, however that word translates in your world, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you love more than the other person, you make yourself vulnerable to hurt and to pain, and you don't have power. You know what I'm talking this, this makes sense? And I want you to think of God that way, that he has embraced the law of least love, meaning that he gave up his power by becoming uh, human, he gave up his power out of love, and he got hurt. How did he get hurt? That's the power of God. In, in, you find it in a different way in the cross, the love of God expressed there. So that's one. I, think that's, I just think that applies so well to God. And you can find that same principle in secular books on counseling. The second one is the law of the first move. And here's how that goes in relationships. You got two people. Let's just say you got a husband and wife, and they're they're at each other, and one of them, one of them has to make the first move, right? There's there's a disharmony in the relationship. There's there's something that needs to be reconciled, and one of them needs to make the first move. And who's going to make the first move? Well, I always say the wife should. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You beat me up later, um, but no, it's it's one of them has to say. I'm going to make the first move because I love and I want healing. And it takes, here's what it does. When you make the first move, it makes you vulnerable to being hurt. It's, it's called a repair attempt if you, in the secular literature. And if you make a repair attempt to your spouse and they don't respond with an open heart, it really, really hurts. You become vulnerable. You see, God made the first move. In the incarnation, he makes that move toward us. He becomes vulnerable. We were able to, to hear him, but see him and touch him. And in all of that, he makes himself vulnerable to us. He makes himself killable to us, which is exactly what happens on the cross. Now, I, I don't, I've done my best to explain what the incarnation is, and I need the worship team to come on up here. We're going to sing this song, and then I'm going to come back shortly. I'm going to have to keep this. Time's getting away, and I'll, I'll just have a few closing comments. So um, would you all stand as we... And I want you to, you, as you sing this, really uh, focus on these words and allow your mind and your heart to embrace the truth that you're singing, that, you're, that your mouth is singing, okay? child is this who made to rest on Mary's lap is 
just our voices. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Just a couple more points here to consider in this. One is that when you worship, I don't know if you experienced this, but when you really worship, you make yourself vulnerable to God. And it's kind of scary. You give yourself up. You let go of control of your being and say, God, you are Lord. I am not. I worship you, not myself. And that's part of it. So he made himself vulnerable to you. And our response is to make ourselves vulnerable to him. Okay, just... That's what that's a big thought right there. But we get to know God as he makes himself vulnerable. He gets to know us as we make ourselves vulnerable to him. It's all about knowing God, personal relationship. Now, in this, in the, in, as John uh, goes on, I'm just going to read verses three and four, because I want you to hear what he says. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that here's the reason for it so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. Rewrite this to make our joy complete. He's inviting you in. He's inviting anyone who will listen to come in. He is proclaiming to you what he has seen and heard and touched. And there's nobody that's going to convince him that he didn't see it, the real deal, or hear it, or touch it. This is an eyewitness account. And he has seen God, the living God, who was in the beginning, become a man. And that he's experienced life. And he continues to experience life with this man because he's resurrected from the dead. And he has a joy in that, that he's inviting anyone who will listen to come into. And this is the voice that's come across the centuries, and it comes to you today. Now, Jesus, because uh, it's an invitation to joy, if you heard it right. And why, let's go back to the beginning. Why would Jesus come into this world, as Hebrews said, he, he came and he died for the joy that was before him? Well, it seems to me that when he was in heaven, he would have had all the joy that he would have ever wanted. Doesn't that seem, I mean, before he came? I mean, he had joy. There's no question about that. God is joy. So why come into this world? What's the point? How do you get more joy? And the answer to that is you and me. He gets, God gets, Jesus gets great joy when we respond to him. The invitation is there. It's, it's not new. It's old. It's from the beginning. God's love for you. Now, if you want to respond to that, and I would really encourage you to do it some way outwardly, one of the ways you can do that is come back and we'll pray in the back. You want to respond to that in a new way. If you have anything in your life you would like to be prayed for, please uh, consider coming back. But this is the day to know that Jesus loves you. Amen. Thank you, Father, for your love expressed to us that, that Jesus became like us.